Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome back to episode three. We're having a, a really in-depth conversation with Dr. Davidson, Dr. Halter, and Dr. Manthe, and we will continue that discussion now. Okay, the Americans with Disabilities Act, known as the ADA, yields some important influence on this discussion that we've been having. Before we get into specifics, Dr. Halter, can you tell us some of the history about this act? It goes back to the 90s and is actually civil rights law, correct? That's right. The Americans with Disabilities Act was modeled after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And this act prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The ADA of 1990 expanded this prohibition to include individuals with disabilities. And disabilities refer to any physical or mental impairment. This law ensures that people with disabilities have the same opportunities as everyone else. Okay. And does the ADA say that organizations can't ask about a nurse's psychiatric history or mental health? Um, Professional boards are subject to the ADA because they are empowered by the state. Uh, The specific regulation that is related to your question is that a public entity may not administer a licensing or certification program in a manner that subjects qualified individuals with disabilities to discrimination on the basis of disability. Mm. A more specific response to your question is psychiatric history is not acceptable, but current impairment is. Okay. So they are allowed to ask that under the ADA. Okay. So it's more about how the question or questions are worded than as Dr. Davidson was explaining earlier in episode one, there are questions that are lawful to ask and some that aren't. Can you explain more about that to us? Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, So not asking any question at all about mental illness is preferable. That's Mm -hmm. what we would like to see on all the board questions in nursing law, psychology, and medicine. And there are other professions we haven't talked about. As previously stated, asking about current impairment is acceptable. For example, Nevada's 2017 application read, do you currently, that's the key word, Do you currently have a medical or psychiatric slash mental health condition, which in any way impairs or limits your ability to practice the full scope of nursing? That's okay. I mean, you kind of want to find that out. Maybe even let the applicant think about doing something about what they just answered, maybe getting some help for that. Um, But questions that go beyond current impairment and ask candidates to disclose psychiatric history in the absence of present limitation are not acceptable. These historical type questions typically require the person to look back for a specific specific period of time, such as two to five years. Uh, Another no-no are predictive type questions. Um, These are hypothetical incompetence questions. They ask applicants to predict how their condition may impact future practice. For example, Do you have a physical, mental, or emotional condition that could impair your ability to practice nursing with reasonable skill and safety? Other predictive terms besides could include may impair, may interfere, 
and might affect. Applicants with psychiatric conditions and histories are required by many states to undertake, this is awful, the laborious task of collecting documentation about their conditions and their treatment. These documents include dates, locations, and circumstances, along with statements in many cases from healthcare providers indicating their ability to safely practice nursing. Mm. One nursing student from Michigan that I had, and again, I'm in Ohio, had to travel, she thought she did, travel back to her state and get all this documentation and just so inconvenient for her at the end of her nursing uh, senior year. Wow. And Dr. Halter, you mentioned that psychology had also addressed pre-licensure applications. What is an example of how psychology boards are progressing with this situation since the way other professions conduct themselves could influence professional nursing matters in this regard? Ah, so I had a good friend named Fred Fries, who's quite famous in the area of stigma. He's a psychologist. He was part of the study conducted by Jennifer Boyd and some of their other colleagues. They scrutinized psychology applications in 2016. They found that 28 states, 28 states asked no questions about mental illness. You may recall that only 21 nursing applications asked no questions. So the psychologists seem to be doing a little bit better maybe because that's their profession's focus. Mm. Um, They drew the same conclusion that we did, namely that states should eliminate mental illness questions or simply screen for current impairment. Well, the medical community, at least in part, has responded to this issue of which questions can be asked. What is going on in the medical community about this? Uh, Like their psychology uh, colleagues, in 2014, after two suicides by medical residents, the American Medical Association put forward a policy to eliminate mental illness and substance use questions. That's 2014. Mm. My study didn't take place until 2018. Um, But the American Medical Association urges states that wish to retain questions about health to focus again on current functioning. As of 2018, their recommended wording was as follows. Are you you currently suffering from any condition for which you are not appropriately being treated that impairs your judgment or would otherwise adversely affect your ability to practice medicine in a competent, ethical, and professional manner? And they answer yes or no. Got it. Okay. Let's return to talking about the nursing side of this issue. If questions about current issues or current things that interfere with one's practice of nursing are allowed, rather than past issues or future assumptions, then we still have the issues related to nurses' concerns of future negative effects. If a nurse disclosed a current interference with practice and the nurse receives help, that info could potentially affect the nurse in the future, right? If it stays as public information, which is what our notations are our answers on state boards are then the potential is there for the rest of that person's life mm. wow so how does it how do we get those those answers how do we get that information expunged from the record or not put there in the first place of course now, the 2019 article raises another concept for consideration It says something about how the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or the NCSBN, did not at the time of the article gather or keep track of information related to a tally of disciplinary interventions related to mental health issues. So it seems we don't know at this time whether increased reporting to boards is actually going to provide more help to nurses or who who could benefit from treatment of some sort. 
What do you think, Dr. Halter? Well, I absolutely believe that board reporting requirements are a huge detractor for getting nurses into treatment. Mm, I agree. Tracking disciplinary actions is done at the state level and it's sometimes available on state board websites. I just went to mine recently to see what it looked like. Um, as with my previous article, what I said in that, I cannot find any information about national tracking. Huh. The NCSBN does report that the current rate of discipline on a nursing license is less than 1%. Wow. That's pretty low. <laughs> uh, tracking these conditions and trying to correlate them with mental health would be quite tricky. In Ohio, only the name and type of license, for example, RN or LPN, are available under a general heading of disciplinary actions. So it used to list what they'd done in general terms. Now they don't. To review the infraction, you have to do specific records search for each individual. Even when more information was available, I had never seen a disciplinary action associated with a mental health condition. I don't remember seeing that anyway. One research question that might generate some information could be, is the diagnosis and the treatment of mental illness in nurses associated with higher rates of disciplinary action in registered nurses? I'm curious, is there really an effect on people in terms of th that less than 1% of discipline? Right. A maybe we could do something like a confidential survey link could, could be sent to a sample of registered nurses. Maybe we could get a feel for the answer to this question that way. Mm, good point. Anything to add, Dr. Manthe? Just in the state of Minnesota, there is one organization that monitors for all health professionals known as the Health Professional Services Program. And so they monitor for every licensed um, profession, health professional. Um, and that's under the Attorney General's office as well, having nothing to do with the professional boards, of, uh, uh, boards of directors. Um, and so that organization has a lot of statistics they collect and report on all the time. Uh, Nursing makes up 50% of the total end, generally speaking, of all of the health professions and then nursing. Mm. So that makes 100%, nursing is 50%. Um, and that is becoming more um, controversial, certainly more controversial due to medical marijuana and other forms of, of medication treatment for substance use disorder. Suboxone so uh, is a very popular drug ordered by physicians for reducing craving and allowing the person to join a normal life. However, it contains heroin. Mm. And so the health professional board is going to ask for urine specimens, periodically blood specimens. And if they're showing a positive result, that is going to have a major impact, at least in nursing, mm -hmm. on that nurse's license. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty going on right now uh, within not only the boards, but also the, the licensing, the, uh, the monitoring agencies. Right. So what Marie brought up, uh, two new points of concern that we haven't discussed previously. The first is that some of the questioning and the tracking by the boards can actually discourage medication-assisted treatment for mm -hmm. substance use disorder, which is a known evidence-based practice, right? right? So we're shooting ourselves in the foot there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, uh, the nurses uh, would not be able to, in certain situations in some states, uh, engage in a, that evidence-based treatment because of what the board would do with the information. 
Right. Yeah. Um, then she also brought up the fact that uh, of everything reported, even though there's seven different professions that are licensed healthcare professionals, 50% of those cases were attributed to nurses, meaning a disproportionate amount of nurses were in disciplinary action. And we did a cursory review in our state of the same thing and found, and we had to patch data from different places together because it's not all housed in one place. And we found the same thing that nurses were disproportionately uh, being disciplined. Um, and you can't imagine that doctors have any less um, issues with alcohol or drugs than nurses do, right? Right, right. So yeah, right. Even in the situation of a DUI or DWI, depending on what state you're in, in uh, the state where I practice, the board, the Department of Motor Vehicles is linked directly to the Board of Nurses. Those records are uh, automatically sent over a year or two after your DUI. You may be picked up by the Board of Nursing. You may have already gone through treatment and recovery. But at that point, the clock stops when the board knows the clock starts there. And then they start working on this issue of um, protecting the public and uh, suspending your license during the investigation. And then you have to go through their board mandated recovery program and system, pay for everything out of pocket and all Ugh. the lawyers associated with that. It could probably cost you somewhere between fifteen and $20,000 to maintain your license on a period of probation where you may or may not be able to keep your job. Most employers will let you go at this point once this happens. Um, I'm trying to find exemplars of organizations that keep their nurses through recovery. If you happen to be listening and you're one of those places, please contact me because we need to shine a light on best practice examples of organizations that understand that substance use disorder is a, is a disease and it can be effectively treated and we don't need to discard these uh, employees, these uh, health professionals we're often the best and brightest amongst us. They, right. There is no reason to discard these people from the profession or to treat them as um, criminals instead of people with a disease. Great point. Another, uh, another part of this is that in the state of Minnesota, it is possible to self-refer. So a nurse who is concerned about her own recovery, wanting to get help, wanting to do the right thing, really dedicated to using all things available to her, can report herself to the HPSP, go into a monitoring program uh, based on a contract that's created. It may last for two years or three years. Now, during that time, as long as she adheres to the contract, she will not be reported to anybody. However, by law, a positive screen, failure to achieve some aspect of that contract will result in a reporting to the Board of Nursing which will then start the disciplinary action on that person's license. And um, I think that there's more self-reporting of nurses than there are of other health professions within HBSB. So that's just an interesting other piece of this. What about the nurse who really does self-report? Uh -huh. And the third thing I want to ask about, just before I forget to say it, is what do we know, those of us in the field, what do we know about the compact? What is the state association, the, the licensing compact that now has 37 states agreeing to administer something about the boards of nursing in the same way? I don't know what they're saying about this. I was hoping, Dr. Halter, that you would have your finger on that pulse. Just a question about what, what does the compact say about boards of nursing 
the compact that holds 37 boards of nursing as one, allowing for nurses to practice across state lines without needing to reapply. I was trying to find information about that very question that you've asked, and I couldn't find anything. Yeah, you won't find anything in writing, but the purpose of the compact is to facilitate the um, ability of nurses to work in more than one state without undue burden on uh, applying for these individual state licenses. So uh, when I asked the national councils this very question, could the compact, if we engage the compact in making this change, it would get us to a tipping point really quickly, wouldn't it? Sounds yeah. like an efficient strategy, doesn't it? Well, uh, but I think the answer was a little discouraging that um, it was felt that the compact, this would not be a priority for the compact because of their other priorities and the work it took to put the compact together for the purpose of facilitating the movement of nurses between states where there's a critical need. I do think, though, that we shouldn't lose sight of this idea even if it looks discouraging on the surface, just like we can't say the elephant's too big, we can't <laughs> right. change this in 50 states, right? Yeah. I, I think the idea of uh, gaining momentum within the compact has, uh, there's a great allure to that. Um, now we just have to see, could we set up an organized approach to make that happen? That'd be great. Yes, absolutely. Now, the article we keep referring to um, discuss pre-licensure situations, but I've heard that some states might be asking about mental health-related information for re-licensure or renewal as well. Have you heard anything about this in your states? Well, I definitely have, and I definitely looked it up in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> um, so the state of Ohio... I was surprised to see they've made some changes. Mm. They are yeah. not asking historical type questions anymore on renewals or, or on uh, pre-licensure applications. Um, let's see. They've cleaned up the question by modifying them somewhat in measurable legal terms. And I think you guys will be interested to hear the way they've changed it. Uh, so in this renewal application, it says, since you have filed your last application, have you been found to be Ooh, listen to this term, a mentally ill person. Oh, dear. I know, I know. We could talk, that would be another podcast. Yeah. Um, you've been found to be a mentally ill person subject to hospitalization by court order, been found to be mentally incompetent by a probate court, or have been found incompetent to stand trial by a court. Presumably, if an applicant responds in the affirmative to that statement, the board would have to follow up. Mm. Um. Hopefully, this is a protect the public issue and not so much of as a protect the board issue. Right. Okay. And Dr. Davidson, you're in California? Yes. California does not ask the questions on licensure or relicensure, oh, but right. the questions right. are the questions are definitely asked during disciplinary hearings in the and in a way that is non-compliant with the ADA. Okay. And Dr. Manthe, Minnesota? Yeah, in Minnesota, it's a relicensure. I'm not quite sure. Um, I think you. I think everybody has to relicense every three years, showing sometimes showing continuing education units uh, acquired. Sure. And the question is always there. Okay, got it. 
You know, I'd like to sneak something in on you. You're not expecting now. Go for uh, it. I hope you don't mind, Leanna. Can not I do at that? all. Not at there, all. There's, yeah, uh, there's, there's a research study that was done by a Dr. Katie Gold, Catherine Gold. Uh, she's a physician on um, what what do people really do with these questions in the field of medicine? And she did this great study that we have to replicate in nursing. And I am, I'm sure I can find nurses to replicate this. She actually used Facebook, a protected Facebook group that she was a part of or had privilege to, and sent out um, a list of 24 questions about these issues of mental health and physicians and the licensing board questions and asked them how many of them felt that they had, um, would self-diagnose with, uh, uh, that they had met criteria for a mental illness. And um, 50% of the women that they studied had met the criteria for mental illness, but not, had not sought treatment, right? 50%. And then also they said that the reason why they had not was one of the reasons was these licensing questions. But then at, when asked the question, did they disclose the fact that they had mental health condition, did they answer yes to the question? Only 6% of those who felt they had the mental health condition had answered truthfully to their medical boards, 6%. So this really tells us that these questions don't do anything except mm -hmm. for increased stigma, right? Sure. If Absolutely. only 6% could answer truthfully, is that really giving the board anything useful to work with, right? And can we um, extrapolate this data in research we call using indirect evidence, right? Can we use this indirect evidence uh, that was gathered amongst physicians and assume that it might be applicable to nursing? And I would say yes, but of course we need to replicate this study. And boy, sure. wouldn't it be fun to do? Wouldn't it? Right? Yeah. Yes. It would. <laughs> yeah, it would. But you know, in the case that you just brought up, Judy, the person had not gotten help. And the question is, did you get treatment? Have you been diagnosed and treated? No, they hadn't. So they answered no. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of research, Dr. Halter, I'll uh, bounce this question to you. What do you think are the gaps in the literature or areas of particular interest for future research related to this topic? Are you sure you want to ask me this? <laughs> I've got a lot to say about it. Uh, first, I mean, the easiest answer that I've got is we need to replicate those studies that I've already talked about. Mm -hmm. Just see if any progress has been made in any of the fields. And like I said, I plan to replicate my own study. Um, second, I'd like to visit the protecting the public issue. I want to see if states with more invasive mental health questions actually protect the public more. Uh, but designing a study to get this information would be tricky. Mm. Um, maybe the proxy for protecting the public would be more disciplinary actions or less. I'm not sure. We'd have to work on that one. Right. Finally, I think it would be helpful to look at the other more positive side of the coin. I'm curious as to whether ADA compliant states application questions improve psychiatric care seeking. Isn't that the bottom line? That's what we all want to know. Sure. I think this question is central to today's topic. Yeah, I would agree. So now that we know more about how there are lawful ways to ask nurses about their practice, let's have a pros and cons discussion. There are beneficial reasons for disclosing some information to the Board of Nursing, and there are reservations for disclosing that kind of information. Dr. Manthe, I feel like you could say a lot here about pros and cons. Before we start naming some of them, could you tell us some of your story as it pertains to this issue? 
I know you could probably take the whole hour or more to share all of the details of your journey. But in a nutshell, can you give us a few of the main points through time as to your story and how disclosing helps and may also hurt for some? I'm happy to do that. Um, I spent the first half of my life as a non-using person, non-alcoholic, non-using drugs. Um, I got into a point in my life where um, I, I was experiencing a great deal of stress. And I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't understand about self-care. And while we haven't mentioned that today, I would like at some point in time for those of us who are in these topics to start talking about self-knowledge, self-awareness, and, and self-choosing uh, how life balance can be best achieved. I think we oftentimes can blame other people for it. And I was doing that. I was certainly victimized by some circumstances. But at this point, I had already developed primary nursing. My career was on a very forward, upward trajectory. I'd been chief nurse of two hospitals here in St. Paul and then Yale, New Haven. But my drinking escalated throughout that time. And I went from one drink before work, I mean, after work, never before, one drink after work, before dinner. And then it moved forward over time, 10 years, until I was able, I'm not able to not drink. I was totally unable to have any control over whether or not I had a drink after work. And so I drank the blackout or pass out every single night. And I knew what position I was in. I knew the responsibilities of it. And what I haven't yet said is I wanted to be a nurse since I was five years old. Something really powerful happened at that time. And this has never been a question for me at any point in my life. It has always been the right thing. So when I was fired for acute alcoholism with the understanding that if I, if I would go to inpatient treatment, I could save my job, I went into inpatient treatment and they fired me while I was there. So at that point in my life, I was totally devastated and I had nothing. I certainly couldn't afford treatment. I had three months of severance. I had two children, a house with a mortgage, a lot of responsibilities financially, and I had no job and no hope of getting one in any field that I was prepared for. So um, my life after that for the next 40 years has been a life of recovery, very staunch recovery. I have engaged uh, in the recovery processes for a long time. I've gone to international meetings. I've sponsored people. I've attended meetings on a regular basis. I have a home group and I have support that is, that is never gonna go away. It's phenomenal. And I know from John Kelly's research that that is the most successful treatment for uh, substance use disorder, having a support group that you stay, that you stay connected to. It wasn't until 10 years ago that two and two became four. And I'm so embarrassed and so angry uh, that I am in the situation that I am, am in where I did not understand what was happening in the nursing profession to nurses like me who had succumbed to a substance use disorder. Um, the conspiracy of silence is so powerful in nursing. It results in stigma and shame that oftentimes in and of itself is enough to keep nurses from getting any kind of help. The shame is profound. The stigma is profound. Stigma comes from the outside, shame comes from the inside, and both of them are barriers to true recovery. I knew 
instinctively that I needed to be honest. I also knew that I could not be honest in public. So I developed a consulting practice and I always told every client the truth about my recovery. Everybody who ever worked with me, worked for me in the company that I developed, everybody knew. And we, 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 incorpor we incorporated some of those principles of life, health into the work. 10 years ago, I had an occasion to be with the Nursing Advocates of Texas. The Texas Nurse Association has a huge program for peer support and, and uh, uh, case management, et cetera. And I realized that I was with a group of, I was there to do a keynote speech on relationship-based care, which sometime I wanna get that incorporated into this work because it's so relevant. And I was talking about the work of my company and I realized these people all knew about recovery. And so at the break, I took a break and uh, I came back for the second half of the keynote and I started off with, my name is Marie and I am an alcoholic. Now I had been speaking nationally and internationally. I'd written my book on primary nursing. I'd co-authored several other books in those years of, of recovery. And I had never said to my colleagues in public, I am a I am Marie Manthe, I am an alcoholic. I said a thousands of times to people who are in AA meetings and other meetings, but never to my own colleagues. And it was like I was on fire on the inside. And all of a sudden I realized the shame, the stigma that had kept that conspiracy of silence pro so profound that I, I don't mean to sound arrogant here, but I will. I, I've been active in the profession of nursing for by that time 50 years. And I had been active in recovery for close to 40 years at that time. And I had never put two and two together. I had never seen what we do about the stigma and shame, which up to that point in Minnesota had been nothing. And so we began to, to address that directly and created something called the Nursing Peer Support Network. We have eight meetings going on around the state now. A couple of them are online meetings and they are opportunities for nurses to talk to nurses. Nurses talking to nurses is absolutely, is absolutely the essential way to relieve stigma and shame. Therapists can't help with that. Counselors can't help with that. It takes a nurse talking to a nurse who's gone through that process to really help. And, and again, William S. White, I don't know what you don't think of him, but we've read a lot of his literature, a lot of his uh, wisdom about peer support as a, as a form of therapy and really find that um, nurses who go to peer support meetings immediately feel connected. They immediately begin to feel a reduction in stigma and shame. That organization now has become somewhat strong in Minnesota because we are right in between the Board of Nursing and HPSB, that monitoring program. They are independent of each other, both under the Attorney General. We stand in between them, a freestanding 501c3, obligated to neither, to no, to no one actually. We are an entity unto ourselves. And that gives us a strength in this particular situation that I, I see as the mechanism that if we don't, if the board, if the other potential leaders in this process aren't willing to um, take a hand in it, we can carry it forward. Dr. Manthe, that was an incredible story. I thank you for sharing that and for the work that you're doing as a result. It's very profound. 
we are going to wrap up episode number three and move to a fourth episode to continue this discussion. It's a very important discussion. Uh, I'm thrilled that we're getting the opportunity to do this with Dr. Manthe, Dr. Halter, and Dr. Davidson. Uh, I am Leanna McGuire, your host for this podcast from Elite Learning and Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.